Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis on Real Fun DC. I want to thank you so much for joining me. I have an amazing show today, but first a little bit about what you're listening to. So I've been covering the DC food and wine scene for the last 18 years. My God, it's so hard to believe since I'm only 21. Uh, And uh, you may hear me or see me in a variety of places. So uh, you definitely hear me and my husband, David, on Foodie and the Beast every Sunday on 1500. We've been doing that food and wine variety show, the only in DC, for the last 13 years. I am the foodie. He is the beast. Uh, And it's a raucous party every Sunday. Lots of booze, lots of food, lots of fun. Uh, Perhaps you also hear me on WTOP, where I do regular reports and roundups of what's happening in the hospitality scene. Uh, Of course, you go to where it all began, the list, areyouonit.com, the online e-zine that covers every food, wine, and hospitality event in the DC metro area area, as well as openings and what the status of restaurants are and every promotion. So if you like to drink and eat, you are covered. Uh, And then we're here on industry night. And this really gives me an opportunity to do a much deeper dive on topics that mean a lot to me, especially in the hospitality and food space. So now, normally at this part of the show, I do a bit about where I've been. And I'm actually going to put a pin in it because um, of our topic today. Now, don't worry, I've been at a lot. Uh, I did hit a lot of places. I'm just going to say their names, and I'm not going to take you through uh, all the dishes and menus and uh, things that I was doing. But I did go to Cranes. I did go to Chiquette. I did go to the book signing with the new uh, pastry book uh, called Best of Mary Lee's Desserts. Um, I did have cocktails at Jane Jane. I did check out what Money Muscle was doing, which is barbecue and all set with um, their lobster rolls. Okay, so, oh yeah, and La Beast. One more, I had La Beast too. You would think um, I don't cook and I do, but um, I also go out a lot as well. So um, no surprise, there's so much good drinking and dining to be had. But as I said, uh, given today's guests and topic, I think it's more important that we focus on those who don't have access like we all do. So those of us who are fortunate, like me, uh, the holiday season can be a time of pure gluttony, right? A glut of friends and family and food and food and, and more food and all the festivities that are usually centered around food. So if I could just direct your eye or your ear to those who they're not just missing gluttony. They don't have access to gluttony. They're missing food. And they're the food insecure. And it is gobsmacking to believe that in this country, there are so many people of all ages who are in a struggle to access food. And I don't mean like cheap food. I mean food, good, nutritious food. Um, this is not the first time I've talked about the horrors of being food insecure on this show or on any of my platforms. Um, but given the season of gluttony, I thought it best to bring in the experts um, who are really trying to eradicate hunger in our community. So back with me is Mike Curtin of DC Central Kitchen, who has done just so much uh, in this community. And 
DC Central Kitchen partners with others. And I really appreciate Mike and his team pointing some of these people out to me so that we can bring them on the show today. I've got Christopher Bradshaw of Dreaming Out Loud and Kate Urbank of Food Rescue. We're gonna talk food sovereignty, COVID, systemic issues, food waste, access, and so much more because it all goes hand in hand. So let's see if we can set a goal for 2022, right? Let's eradicate food hunger. So Mike Curtin, thank you so much for joining me again. How are you? I'm great, Nikki. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to, to see you and hear your voice and to be with you again. Well, it's always a pleasure and you're always doing so much. I mean, DC Central Kitchen is, uh, you know, one of the biggest charities in this city. It gets a, a lot of play because you have very good people around you. But can we talk a little bit about the structure of the charity and what, how you sort of all began and sort of how it's evolved? What is it, like 30 plus years? Uh, almost, almost 33. Wow. Yeah, next month. Mm. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, actually, so the, the, the quick thing is we are a, a food-based social enterprise nonprofit uh, that uses food as a tool. And I emphasize that it's very, very important. The food is our tool to strengthen bodies, empower minds, and build community. Um, we, the, the premise upon which the, a, one of the two important premises upon which the kitchen is based is first that food will never end hunger. You know, we, we've been putting thousands of people into the community every day for 33 years. And uh, during COVID, about 12,000 meals a day from the basement of this shelter where I'm standing right now. And so if food were the answer, uh, we would be done. Clearly that is not the answer. Um, the other inspirational pillar behind DC Central Kitchen is that what uh, was a recognition that our founder, Robert Egger had th almost 33 years ago when he went out to volunteer with a church group to feed men and women who were living on the streets and, and recognized that uh, this effort that was going into feeding people somehow accidentally um, had been twisted. And I say accidentally because the men and women that were doing this were doing it for the right reasons. They were doing it with the love in their hearts and they were doing it because they thought they were helping. But ultimately, a, a lot of what was happening in charity in general was more about the redemption of the giver than the liberation of the receiver. Uh, and, and, and focusing on those that, that theoretically we're feeding, but if we're feeding them today, knowing that we're going to feed them tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, why, why are we going through this exercise that doesn't seem to get us anywhere except make us feel better a little bit today? Well, doesn't uh, it go so, back to the old adage, if you give a man a fish? It, it, it absolutely does that. And I think ultimately where we've taken that, if you give someone a fish, feed them for a day, teach them to fish, feed them for a lifetime. But um, we also have to think about learning, continuing to learn new ways to fish. And that's really what the kitchen has been about, uh, specifically in creating our social enterprise businesses over the years. So in addition to taking thousands of pounds of food every single day that would otherwise end up in landfills, be thrown away, turning that into healthy, nutritious meals, then delivering those meals to organizations or homeless uh, the shelters, transitional homes, halfway houses, recovery programs, um, so that those organizations can focus their limited resources on helping their clients get to a, a better place, uh, a place of self-sufficiency and not spend that money on food. Uh, and while we're doing that, we are training individuals that have had significant barriers to employment, like histories of incarceration, addiction, uh, homelessness, abuse, or other traumas, 
to get good jobs in the hospitality business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and, and again, as we've learned new ways to fish, we've created these social enterprise businesses um, that employ many of these men and women at living wages with living benefits, uh, most notably our locally sourced scratch cook school food program. We have a wholesale program delivering fresh fruits and vegetables and cut fruits and vegetables to corner stores in our city's food apartheid areas. We have catering operations and um, social enterprise cafes, as well as other contract uh, meal programs. Uh, and all of this that we've been doing over the last 30 plus years now have been mostly in the basement of this crumbling shelter um, at the end of Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so after years of looking, uh, we will be move, relocating our, our operations next year to Buzzard 6 Southwest Waterfront um, in a 36,000 square foot uh, food hub and commu- urban food hub and community kitchen, the largest and most ambitious in the in the, the country has ever seen. Um, in addition, we are the. What does that mean, Mike? What does when you say food hub? Sure. Are you an incubator? What does that mean? Because well, I read it in the literature, and you and I've talked about it. But sure. What does it well, mean? You know what, what's interesting, Nikki, and, and and you know, good for you for catching that because food hub is one of these words that gets thrown around a lot, um, and th- there are multiple definitions. Um, for, for our purposes, what we have always been is a community kitchen, which is a food hub of sorts. We will expand that, but we are bringing uh, food from different places, mostly local sustainable foods to a, 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 a central location, the central kitchen, and then turning that into product in a, in a way that benefits not only the individuals that are doing that work, but the, the, the end users of that food. So whether those are going out to corner stores or uh, schools, um, in our area that, that are, are, are working with a lot of students um, who are on free and re- the free and reduced lunch program. Mm-hmm. Um, and while, while we're doing that work, we are also encouraging others to come into our space, work with us either as volunteers or in Chris's, Chris Bradshaw's uh, case, some of his young food entrepreneurs will, will be working in our space to produce their projects that we will then sell in a cafe in this space. Uh, we will also be doing media uh, in, in this space. So thought leaders in food, sustainability, food access will be coming to this space to, to share their thoughts um, and, and, and the, the projects that they are, that they are doing. Uh, so we envision this to be a, a gathering space, not just a place where we're, we're putting, bringing food in and moving food out, but where we're transforming lives, transforming communities, and transforming the way people understand the power that food has to be part of that process. Well, you know, you've always, DC Central Kitchen, uh, you know, Jose Andre was a huge proponent early on before he created World Central Kitchen. In fact, he used it as, as a model initially. Yeah, he absolutely did. did. Don't you forget that. I, and I would never, <laughs> ever forget that, ever. There, there's I'm no a, chicken in the egg discussion with that, right? This no, time. no. <laughs> but I mean, we all, DC Central Kitchen, World Central Kitchen. I mean, we can all see how it started. Um, But you have uh, incredible community partnerships. You have a lot of buy-in from the community. And how does that help elevate you given what you're doing? Sure. Well, as I said, we are a community kitchen. Um, We were the first uh, to to, to create that, that idea, that model. And it, again, it is based on including the community, is based on being more than one thing. It's simply, we're not a soup kitchen, we're not a pantry, we're not a food bank, 
Uh, we are a place that uses these food, not just with what's, what's going to happen tomorrow in mind, but what's going to happen 10 years from now down the road. And, and one of the ways that, uh, that I think has been really, uh, for me and for us, incredibly meaningful uh, as part of our COVID response has been getting to know some of our community partners even better than we had before, and certainly expanding that portfolio of friends and partners and collaborators during, during the pandemic. Um, one of the things, Nikki, that, that I, I know you have talked about, we talked about it last year, is that, that the overwhelming, sometimes just, just staggering uh, philanthropic support that we've seen from the community, your listeners, um, during, during this pandemic, during this tragic time, um, we recognize that all of that philanthropy is not coming to us just because of the amazing, efficient, effective, transparent work that we've done, but because when someone Googles hunger in D.C., they come up with DC Central Kitchen. They might not come up with Food Rescue USA or, or, or Dreaming Out Loud um, or Life Pieces to Masterpieces or Plenty to Eat or all these other grassroots organizations that are just kicking, are doing great work, I guess I should say, um, all the time. Uh, and, and, and we couldn't handle all, all that, that we had either. So we were able to work with our partners in, in really productive ways, not only to find need, but to meet the need. And, and, and we've, uh, to, to, to date, We've um, subgranted well over $600,000 of the, of the philanthropy that has come to DC Central Kitchen to these other groups, not only to position them to meet the needs today, but to create this stronger ecosystem for tomorrow and into the future because the, 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 the damaging effects of this pandemic are going to be felt years after we, are, we stop wearing masks and, and finally get everyone vaccinated and go back to what we remember as a, as a normal kind of life. And so that we've really, I think, taken this notion of a community kitchen, a community gathering place to an incredible heights during this pandemic. So if, if there, and there are some, I think, silver linings to this very dark COVID cloud, um, this building of this community and this ecosystem is certainly one of them. Well, I mean, you sort of jumped ahead for me because one of the things I did want to ask, but I'm going to put it to the group later in the show. It's a good segue to, to bring on Christopher Bradshaw, but there are so many organizations that want to help and how does everybody play in the sandbox without you know feeling that their toys are being taken or their money is being taken like how do people work together when the the intent is all good so i yep. we're gonna come back to that and mike i'm gonna come back to you sure Bradshaw, thank you so much for joining us it's so nice to have you on the show and i'm very excited about the work that you are doing um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and how you created the construct for Dreaming Out Loud. It's Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm um, a country boy. I'm from Tennessee. So I've, uh, I've grown up very familiar with food from uh, the beginning and from a very community-centered uh, uh, standpoint from a basis of folks that came from sharecropping, that suffered land loss, that um, were very in tune with the land. It was very much a part of my upbringing from my grandfather who uh, moved up to uh, Connecticut after um, having fled the South because he gave the owner, uh, the wife of the owner of the uh, ice cream shop where he worked a ride home, 
uh, and that upset the white residents, and he ended up uh, moving to Connecticut, working for Pratt & Whitney, and becoming a, a real estate entrepreneur as well. And uh, when he got done with his long day uh, of, of um, working at the factory and then going by his various properties and uh, fixing the pipes and locks and things that were broken, uh, when he was done, his, his leisure time, his fun time was uh, going to a garden space. So, you know, when I think about uh, undertaking this work, I think about those memories and, and oftentimes look back at the photos uh, from those spaces. Uh, my uncle also used to hobby farm about an acre across the street from my grandmother's house. So food is core to who I am, uh, deeply entrenched in the agricultural system as a, a child of the South and as a black American who's, uh, you know, uh, you all said a couple of different words that uh, made me think about uh, my experiences and, and our approach to the work. Um, uh, and one of those was, you know, going back to our historical linkages to um, chattel slavery, Jim Crow era, redlining, and the many public policies that have uh, impacted our current food system. Uh, and as such, you know, our approach uh, aims at getting at the root causes and framing the historical circumstances that have led us to the present day uh, food system. Um, Dreaming Out Loud, our mission is to create economic opportunity within marginalized communities by building a healthy, equitable food system. Uh, and in undertaking that work, you know, um, we really, really, really want to get down to the root causes. Uh, a couple of other words that, that are phrases and concepts that, that Mike mentioned were um, food apartheid, which is a, a phrase coined by Karen Washington that has to do with that intentional construction of the labor laws of the racialized uh, uh, denial of resources or, or uh, intentional uh, harms due to public policy and, and social constructs that have uh, shaped where black folks are situated within our food system. Um, another thing that, that resonated with me. Uh -huh. No, 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 go ahead, please. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say another thing that resonated uh, with me as, as uh, Mike was speaking about uh, the fishermen res uh, um, uh, metaphor. Uh, and we talk about, uh, you know, that from a different perspective as, you know, you can teach a man to fish, but what uh, are the set of, of reparations needed when someone is denied access to the fishing pole, to the river, to the lake, to the pond, uh, or the bait to even begin fishing? And so that's the circumstances with which, uh, you know, we find ourselves uh, and want to frame things from, from, from our perspective. Well, I think that's really interesting because you're right. You can teach a man to fish, but if he doesn't have a pond to fish in or there's no fish there, what difference does it make, right? So how does Dreaming Out Loud, as you formed Dreaming Out Loud, how did you sort of tackle each of these issues and how does it cause effect now? Right. Um, given that we're talking about deeply entrenched systemic and structural changes or challenges that have uh, evolved over time, our approach has had to encompass uh, multiple aspects of the food system, as well as a key component of our work being advocacy uh, and thought leadership around framing what the root causes are. And so uh, on the ground as an organization, our work translates to, uh, you know, uh, helping to find ways for our community members to access the pond to uh, perhaps get some uh, fishing gear 
uh, in partnership with great organizations like DC Central Kitchen, who you know share that values alignment uh, and and want to make that thrust with us. Um, we are a farm, a food hub, and an incubator, uh, and so we grow healthy food at. Um, the farm and food hub at Kelly Miller, uh, which is a two acre space, which we manage in Ward 7. Um, we'll also be taking on a second farm in Ward 8 called the, uh, the farm at Fort Stanton. Uh, and as a food hub, uh, we, we work to aggregate produce uh, and other agricultural products uh, into our Black Farm Community Supported Agriculture Program, wholesale operations, and value-added products. Um, we're really excited about being able to co-locate. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, no, 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 it's okay. It's hard when we can't see each other. Um, so for Dreaming Out Loud and the farm component, so you have these farms, who's, are you teaching people how to farm on the land? Are you taking the product from that land and giving it to the community? Are people growing it themselves? How is the, how does the farm component work? Right. So we do manage the farm uh, as, uh, as an organization. Um, but you'll find that the folks that are within the community are who is employed to grow food on the farm. Uh, that uh, production goes into our uh, food access program called the Black Farm Community Supported Agriculture Program. Uh, it also finds its way into uh, school food and other um, food programming with partners like DC Central Kitchen. Um, and we also do have a component where folks are invited to um, you picks where they can pick uh, their own produce uh, and take that home. So we have a variety of methods for people to access uh, what's grown on the farm uh, and, and to learn. Um, many folks like to uh, come get their hands dirty and, like I mentioned before, you know, reconnect with those memories of, you know, snapping peas on their grandmother's porch or uh, farming when they went to go visit their, you know, relatives in North Carolina. So it's a very much a, a healing space. Uh, connecting to ancestral knowledge, uh, as well as an intergenerational space where people can come and uh, you'll see grandparents and grandchildren and uh, children from Kelly Miller Middle School, along with community members there convening or uh, going to a, a workshop on herbalism or nutrition, all sorts of programming that connects people in different ways. Well, I, I, I'm fascinated by that. And I'm also, I'm going to throw the same question to you that I threw to Mike, which is you use the term food hub. How does Dreaming Out Loud execute its food hub. What does it mean to you? Right. So uh, by USDA definition, uh, a food hub is an entity that actively manages the aggregation, processing, and distribution of uh, local or regional agricultural products. And uh, that boils down to basically uh, we are in the middle of the logistics of producers and communities and businesses uh, and institutional channels to connect the dots for folks so good food can make it to whom it needs to get to at the right price um, so that uh, farmers and food producers can be properly compensated. Uh, community members have access to uh, just employment uh, and that uh, the food needs of our communities across um, a lot of different um, intersections of, of, of institutions are, are a part of that mix. Uh, you know, food hubs operate infrastructure like uh, refrigerated trucks and, and cold storage. At present, you know, we are uh, very much spread out amongst uh, multiple spaces, um, but I think that the real multiplier effect 
of the work that we've all been doing together uh, is really going to be able to be uh, seen, displayed, and, and scaled in a different way, uh, co-locating at River Point with the Pacific Kitchen. Great. Well, um, I can't wait to get into that because it's all very exciting. It's sort of like the culmination of everything. I want to sort of move over to Kate Urbank at Food Rescue. Christopher, just hold on because we're going to, you know, do a huge panel at the end. We're all going to, you know, share more information. Uh, Kate Urbank, Food Rescue. Um, tell us a little bit about you, how you got into this, because this is about food waste, which I don't think people put, they don't do two and two equals four when it comes to food waste and access to food. So thank you for this opportunity to talk about my work. Um, I was a volunteer for what is now called Food Rescue US, a national nonprofit based in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Um, I loved it. It was an opportunity to use an app to self-schedule my volunteer time, picking up from a business that wanted to donate their excess food rather than waste it and driving sometimes literally half a mile down the street in Stamford, Connecticut, where I lived to drop it off at a men's shelter. And as I tell people, they loved me picking up and they loved me dropping off. And the whole thing took less than an hour. And I went home feeling great about myself and knowing that, you know, without that little uh, last mile uh, piece, we uh, that food might not have been transferred and might have been wasted. So um, I went to Georgetown University and lived here for 10 years after. So I'm familiar with D.C. and I decided to move back here about six years ago, thinking I um could find employment. Um, I worked in politics quite a bit up in uh, Connecticut and relocated here. And then uh, my job hunt was sticking a little bit. And I thought, let me go volunteer for the food rescue program on the ground in DC and Googled, couldn't find one, certainly saw DC Central Kitchen prominently, um, as Mike said. And then I uh, was connected to uh, Josh Singer, who had started something called the DC Food Recovery Working Group, which was a group of people working, whether it was from composting, to uh, food donation, uh, anti-food waste, um, that was the goal. And, and I connected with them and it was determined that they there was not uh, an app-based volunteer-driven. I mean, people do amazing work in the space and there's food that gets rescued that's not necessarily through a food rescue program. Um, but it was very exciting to have that confirmed. Can I stop you for a sec, Kate? Because yes. I think it's necessary to explain what, yeah. res what rescuing food means because to the uninitiated that may not ring true about anything. They're probably like, what do you mean? Like if I have food in my fridge, that's not bad. Or, you know, if it's at a restaurant or a grocery store, if it's past the expiration date, like, I don't want that. Do you know what I mean? So like, what do we mean by that? Yeah. And that's a good point. Cause the other day I referred to food waste. I was on an international call and people said, what is food waste? What is that term? And I said, well, you know, that's kind of an odd term. I, I, we can say surplus food or excess food, but Generally speaking, people talk about food waste and loss. So food rescue is um, a general term that means um, um, saving food that is healthy, edible, um, safe to donate, and getting it from one place to another. So that's what I mean when I refer to food rescue. Mm -hmm. And when you guys do that with food rescue, when you started the company here, I know it's an app-based concept, but didn't you have to go shake a lot of hands and you have to introduce yourself to, I mean, how do you, how do you make that efficient and effective? Yeah, actually I was at a food policy council meeting and um, there was 
about 200 people in the audience and somebody raised their hand and said something about, you know, the problem with food waste is we can't get it from here to there. It's that last mile piece. And so I raised my hand and um, said, I've moved back to town and I'm bringing this program to the district. And Spike Mendelson, um, who was the chairperson, took a note and I connected with him the next day. And soon he was helping me to introduce myself to other restaurants. We the Pizza has donated for, you know, five years. Um, it was a bit of a listening tour. I, I needed to find not just the food donors, the businesses that would donate, but also the agencies that could receive the food. The, what our model is, is business to nonprofit. So um, it doesn't do me much good if I have a lot of food that I've identified that needs to be rescued, but I don't know where it goes and vice versa. So is the food cooked? Is the food, like, does it have to be certain temperature? Like, what are all the restrictions? Because I, I, I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole with you, but there's so, it feels so heavy. It feels like there's so many things that have to be right to get food from one place to another. Well, we do farmer's markets. We do small grocery stores. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that has become, I think, our sweet spot here is working with corporate cafeterias. And I will give a huge nod to DC Central Kitchen because as my little nonprofit began to pick up steam and people became more aware of it, there, uh, DC Central Kitchen was um, going to the World Bank, to Freddie Mac, to some of these large corporations because they would never want to say no to people that wanted to donate food. But their model is, you know, to prepare food and, and train people. Um, and so I think they started to say, well, maybe this program that engages volunteers to pick up and drop off can come on board to do the food rescue for a lot of this prepared food. So we don't move hot food. We have a policy that in order to keep it as safe as possible, we have uh, people refrigerate overnight and our volunteers usually go in the morning. So we don't have the temperature issues quite as much. Plus my food rescues tend to be no more than 10, 15, 20 minutes between pickup and drop off. So a lot of the concern about food safety um, is kind of dealt with by the fact that we're quick about it. We don't have warehousing. We go from here to there. And food donation is protected by the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Food Donation Act of 1996, which is just a long-winded way to say that um, it encourages business to donate food in good faith without fear of liability. Right, because that was always one of the problems. Um, and I mentioned to you off air about you sort of glean from like farmers markets and things like that. And you actually mentioned something that, that I hear from the farmers, which is, you know, they have the product, but they don't have anybody to pick it up and they don't have any way of getting it where it needs to be. But you're sort of taking care of that because if they're in a farmer's market, you know, and if they can get somebody to get there to just pick it, they can bring it with them and then you can take it from them. Am I right in that assessment? Yeah, we, we do the DuPont Circle Fresh Farm Market. We do several fresh farm markets, but what my volunteer base does, the food goes to DC Central Kitchen and there's so much of it that us, there are a few other agencies that benefit from it. But our volunteer base goes to the farmers about 20 minutes before close with bags and boxes to say, we will um, gather up and it's quite, there's a team of eight people that do this every Sunday. They gather up the food. A lot of the farmers bring extra food knowing that the farmer's market will be gleaned. And, and others of them, if they have uh, greens, et cetera, that they would then have to put back on their truck and drive back to Pennsylvania or West Virginia 
they don't want to do that because they know it will degrade. So um, a farmer's market is a wonderful opportunity to, as they say, glean. Um, you can glean a market, I mean, a farm at its core, going out and picking apples or collard greens. But when we talk about gleaning the farmer's markets, it's really just gathering up what uh, surplus food is available and making sure. And then the DC Central Kitchen truck comes and, and takes it away. And um, But we scurry around and, and there's so much to collect, hundreds and hundreds of pounds, especially during the bounty of the, the summer season. I bet. And then when, if, so if I were on your app, let's say, as a volunteer, um, where am I going? Not just DC Central Kitchen, what are some of the other organizations that are the recipient of your gleaning? We work with um, DC Housing Authority, Senior Wellness Centers. We work the Central Union Mission, Charlie's Place, Shirley's Place. Um, I mean, I have, we work into Northern Virginia. Um, I work with church programs. I work with mutual aids. And, and that's a term we might discuss a little bit later, perhaps. Um, but um, basically, as long as an agency is a group is a nonprofit agency and they're in need of food, it's a matchmaking, right? If, if it's a, a kitchen that can take raw foods to prepare it, then, then I know that canned, when I do get canned goods and certainly vegetables and fruit, um, fruits and proteins can go there. If it's um, a place that really needs to hand a meal out um, to people who are um, unhoused, oftentimes they like those prepared meals that come individually packaged from um, Vegetable and Butcher, one of my favorite donors, that they are able to have surplus because it's a meal delivery system and they, they you know, they can't quite nail exactly how many meals they'll need each right. day and week. So there's surplus. So it's a matchmaking um, opportunity. And um, I mean, I have over 200 and growing agencies registered in our app looking for food donations, and I'm trying to get to all of them. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Real Fun DC. <sighs> Serving up thought for food. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Well, so at the end, we'll tell everybody how they can help, right? And how they can get on the app or volunteer and do whatever. But now I want to sort of bring everybody in um, to sort of talk about the multi-layers here. Because what I'm hearing, and Mike, you said this in the in the beginning, is there's lots of food. I mean, there's lots of food, but the question is how do we not just, we don't need to get, and there's lots of people getting the food to the people who need the food, but there is a general disconnect. And I, Christopher, I kind of want to start with you because you mentioned, you know, food apartheid, food apartheid, um, and that we're dealing with so many issues in areas where there are no grocery stores and there's not a lot of structure to support the community. And that is something that you were looking to really change. So is there, with your organization, your dream program, how does that help people get jobs? Because honestly, getting jobs is probably the next step to also securing that they always have access to food. Right. So uh, the DREAM program uh, is a 16-week program. Uh, over the course of it, folks learn everything from formalizing a business to accessing capital to marketing. Uh, and rather than graduating into, you know, um, just the next steps on their own, we look at it as an ecosystem of support where we try to connect them with opportunities, whether they're a caterer or a composting company or a farmer. Um, 
connecting them with opportunities uh, to generate revenue, to be a part of a community, um, and also to have the conversations about what is needed for our community to be able to access opportunities uh, at a broader scale, uh, and what realistically um, the, the barriers are that, that are facing food entrepreneurs from marginalized communities like the communities that we are from and, and are part of and, and serve. Uh, so that conversation is about advocacy for uh, labor rights. It is about uh, you know, the confluence of, of public policy that has uh, led to the circumstances where you know, in our region, 80, uh, white wealth is 81 times that of black wealth and that was pre-pandemic, um, which you know those numbers are surely exacerbated by the the, the loss of wealth uh, and jobs over the course of this you know almost two years. And so our our work is to frame those circumstances and talk about the bigger picture public policy solutions like comprehensive and holistic reparations, uh, universal basic income, and other policies that can close the gap so that when food entrepreneurs um, are exiting our program into uh, this ecosystem, that uh, the communities which they want to serve and have be able to enjoy what they've created actually have the wealth, they have the resources to enjoy those products. Um, you know, community members, uh, Typically, you know, typically businesses hire folks that look like them. So the more that we can um, advance our, our mission to support these folks who are creating companies um, and cooperatives, uh, the better we can advance that mission. Um, but we also have to be careful about mythologizing entrepreneurship as a solution to uh, all that ails communities that have, that have uh, suffered uh, really centuries of, of, of white supremacy and denial of economic opportunity. Well, actually, that's an excellent point. I, I, and I was just going to sort of bring in Mike on that because you're both doing training for work, but what are the barriers, Mike? I mean, you know, you're bringing in, uh, you're training uh, people from a variety of backgrounds, maybe who haven't had the benefit of, uh, you know, certain education, uh, a certain way of life, access to any sort of, you know, financial well being. So how do you train and, and take them to people, take them to restaurants? How do, you, how do you market the people that you're training so that they can get the work? And then they can, once they have those positions, they can help raise other people up because once the process starts, it continues. Sure, so, so there, there are two, two things that, that we probably should talk about here, Nikki. And one of them um, is, is just, sort of adjacent to where you are at the moment, but but picks very nicely up on what Chris was just talking about mythology. And we talk about this a lot. So while we we are training individuals, um, and I'll talk about that in a second, what we really have to do is convince others of the value of, of, of expanding their uh, job, their, their applicant pool. Are opening up their minds, and 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 I and I use the word mythology because this is where I think we get tripped up on this mythology of the American dream, right? You know, and, and that 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 politicians, especially over the last several years, love to invoke this idea that it's just hard work and 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 you know stick to itiveness, and you too can get a job and you know and and rise out of wherever circumstances you are to become and do anything. That is just nonsense. 
Right. Um, it, it is it is certainly probably relatively true if you if you look like I do. Um, right. Um, but the, the the idea that anyone can can come from any circumstances and have equal access to opportunities is just not the case. Uh, and especially individuals say that a lot of the, the folks that we work with that have been involved with the criminal justice system. And again, the second myth that you do, you do the crime, you pay your time, you come out, you start all over bullshit. It doesn't happen like that. And, and we have we, we have just just we have just erected immense barriers uh, to opportunity that only cost us more money and, and, and cost us more as a society by not allowing people to 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 take that next step to to actualize to become that person they want to become. Um, well, so so, I, I just want to say to your point, and I put this back to everybody here. So like the service industry, the hospitality industry, there is a major employment issue, front of the house, back of the house, all parts of the house. Like there's no servers, there's no, there's nobody in the kitchen. Like there's there's a problem. There are jobs out there. Where, but the training is necessary to get people in those kitchens. Are you saying that even if the training was done because of poor perceptions, they wouldn't be able to get the jobs? No, no, no. I'm not. No, I'm not saying that. But I, I say we have to continue to push. Yes. Right? And um, we, we absolutely do. Uh, so we have to. You know, earlier I said we use food as as a tool to strengthen bodies, empower minds, and and that's that's minds. That's all minds. That's minds everywhere. That's minds. Kitchen, that's minds in the boardroom, that's minds in the community, uh, that's minds in the pews, that's minds in the courts. All of those places we need to open, empower people to open up their minds and imagine better, imagine more. Uh, and when we do it here at the kitchen with our students, uh, our training, most of the most important part of our training, and I say this with, with love and respect to, to the, our chef instructors, but it, it doesn't happen in the in, with a knife and a pot and a pan and a stove and an oven. It happens in in the, the classrooms and the other places where we're working on heads and hearts and, 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 and really getting people to open up to the potential that they have. You know, I mean, we're not just talking about people not recognizing potential in others. We're talking about people not recognizing potential in themselves because systematically they've been told they don't have value. Right. right. And, and, and this is this is part of what we're doing. So when we talk about the social enterprise work that we do, it's not just to generate revenue, half of now our, our budget. But it's to be the employer we want others to be, and to by by paying living above, well above the, the district's living wage, by contributing generously to retirement plans, to by offering set schedules, uh, paid time off, sick pay, all these other benefits, we we are creating uh, more of a lifestyle, an opportunity to create a life, uh, and these are again more minds that we want to open. Well, I mean, you're walking the walk, right? Like we can all profess how we think it should be, but if somebody isn't there putting putting those things in play, then it doesn't happen. I, I want to circle back and talk a little bit about sustainability and food waste because we want to talk about how it sort of dovetails with all of this, Kate. So how, you know, how do you work with organizations like DC Central Kitchen to help them further their mission? really amazing things about my partnership with DC Central Kitchen is that I get referrals from them for work that is not quite um, 
a match for the the work that they do so i i'm constantly in touch with amy and jackie and they'll send me a connection saying you know for whatever reason various um, businesses have approached them with an offer that is more suited to my program so um we work very much hand in hand which has been a really wonderful i mean i can't i can't thank dc central kitchen enough for helping to launch this program so um between us and other organizations that i reach out to and they reach out to we do our best to make sure that no offer of healthy um food uh that would otherwise go to waste um ends up in landfill which i mean which i applaud and i i want to at christopher bring you back in for a second because you mentioned um, private, uh, public and private sector partnerships. And I wanted to know sort of how you're using that in within your organization as you grow and then you know continue this big growing partnership with DC Central Kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> uh, Public-private partnerships are essential. Um, you know, uh, from a foundational level, uh, the farm at Kelly Miller is on public land. It is owned by the district's Department of uh, Parks and Recreation, who's been an incredible partner. Uh, and we're responsible for um, uh, organizing the programming and partnerships that really enliven that space, as well as building out the uh, infrastructure that helps to feed the community and, and facilitate uh, the work that happens there, um, which couldn't happen without a partnership with the city. Um, we also utilize the city. Uh, really behind it, Christopher. Does the city understand the value? Are they behind it? Are they incredibly supportive? Because, you know, I think if you were to look at national news, there's a, there's a, so much talking but so little action. And it, how is DC in working with you in supporting you? Yeah, I think the city has been supportive, uh, supportive of the farm. You know, DPR is a, an incredible partner um, and really has helped to highlight our work as, uh, you know, a model that others could uh, help to follow. Um, we've also worked with the city around uh, the Produce Plus Direct program and DC Greens, another uh, nonprofit that, um, you know, administered that DC health program, which we utilize as a, a tool to help make it affordable for folks to access our black farm community supported agriculture program uh you know making it free or affordable for you know 85 percent of the more than 1,000 people that receive that 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 food source and so you know that critical uh aspect of procurement dollars uh, is also what we utilize to drive into other uh, black farms, woman-owned farms, uh, uh, BIPOC farms that, uh, you know, represent a vision of what a just food system would look like. So I think the city has been uh, very supportive, but like any, uh, any initiative, we'd love to see a deepening of the commitment around uh, the different parts of the food system that we see as, as really critical to advancing economic opportunity and justice in, in, in a food system where everyone has uh, an opportunity to enjoy the food, but also benefit uh, financially in, 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 in a way that builds wealth over time. And how are you, how do you find that fostered? Like, how do you foster that? How do we foster that? How do we help create that? Yes, I think there's a number of different ways that we can foster uh, a vision of a just food system. I think it, you know, it first starts with personal choices in your dollar vote, uh, you know, utilizing, you know, what you have uh, to support uh, BIPOC farmers and, and food makers. 
um, supporting organizations like the, the ones on the phone here today that uh, have values alignment and commitments to uh, advance that cause as well. Um, as um, the district and as you know, city, state, local, and national governments, it's uh, resources committed around the root causes. Uh, so those can be uh, resource committed, resources committed to uh, universal health care, universal basic income, um, closing the racial wealth gap through policies like holistic and comprehensive reparations that uh, not only compensates individuals uh, but institutions that who you know whose wealth, uh, whose who, whose labor and whose knowledge created the wealth uh, that exists in our society. We're we're not the richest country in the world because of happenstance or because um, uh, of just innovation. It was because of free labor uh, and and the draining of knowledge from black communities and indigenous communities that needs to be uh, compensated for. And so, you know, you wanna talk about the, the whole big picture of root causes, we have to drill down into those uncomfortable conversations uh, and take on those political um, conversations that, you know, many find uncomfortable or aren't palatable for some, but those are, are the core issues and a part of the picture of, of, of building out what we want as a, as a just food system and a nation that has uh, justice as its foundation. Um, well, I'm with you on it. I think having those conversations are really necessary. That's why we're here today. And, and they're not easy, but they are important. And the more that we can share and educate everybody, the better chances we have of take, making this issue seem less and less and less. I mean, the goal would be for all of your organizations to be completely unnecessary <laughs> at some point in time. Um, I, the show, unfortunately, we could go on. I have so many more questions and yet it's we've been on for almost an hour. So um, Kate, I wanna go to you first. Tell everybody please where they can find you either online or on Instagram and, and how we could get on that app and, and help out. Sure. So the way we are not in the app store or on Google play. So don't go looking for us there. Um, if you go to foodrescue.us, that is our national website. And you'll, I think you click on something called be the rescue, which is one of our new slogans. And it talks about, uh, it shows you how to click and become a food rescuer. And if you're interested in receiving food, or if you have food to give, there's a place to click. And then that will basically connect uh, those two categories to me, and then I'll do outreach to onboard them. Um, there's also, I, I cannot go without saying that there's also an opportunity to donate financially um, through the national website. Um, DC raises money to support the DC program, DC Northern Virginia. So there's an option to click and say, this is directed to the DC program. And so, yeah, I have, um, Right now, I think I have about 400 volunteers that I would consider active. We have many, many more registered, but there's 400 people whose names I kind of know because I see them in the app. And, um, you know, to date, since this started, we've recovered about 6 million pounds of food. So that's an awful lot for, um, I'm, I'm the only staff member. I work with my volunteers and the national organization and the app allows it all to happen. So yeah, but we need help. I need volunteers and um, always looking for more food. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. And uh, Christopher, tell us, please, where we can find out more information on Dreaming Out Loud, how we can follow you, and how we can stay up to date on all the urgent work that you are doing. Absolutely. You can start by visiting our website at dreamingoutloud.org or following us on social media at D-O-L-D-C across all platforms. Excellent. And Mike Curtin, 
I can't thank you enough for always, you know, bringing such an incredible crew of people together and an amazing conversation. And DC Central Kitchen has so many exciting things coming into play for 2022. Um, tell everybody where they can find you, please. Uh, thank, thank you, Nikki. And, and thanks, Kate and Chris, and amazing partners all. Um, DCCentralKitchen.org, uh, at DCCK across all platforms. But if you want to see, and you can get there through DCCentralKitchen.org, but our, our vision, our shared vision for the future, uh, www.bringingthekitchenhome.org is where we talk about, and there's a slideshow, you can see the future as we imagine it, uh, a, a future that has only been shown to be more necessary in these last 20 months as we all struggle every day to meet this incredibly growing need caused by this pandemic, but exacerbated by the pandemic caused by the systemic and structural racism and economic inequality and exclusion that has that has, this has always existed in our country. So, so check that out, be part of it, join us. It, it is going to be cool. Um, it, it, is, uh, it, it is necessary and it, it will, I hope, be an example for thoughtful, inclusive urban development, not only across the country, but around the world. Excellent. Well, without telling you all I've been eating and making you salivate, I have certainly given you a lot to chew on. I want to thank my guests again, Mike Curtin of DC Central Kitchen, Christopher Bradshaw of Dreaming Out Loud, and Kate Urbank of Food Rescue. Here are people in the city doing amazing work. Guess what? We can all help. Um, so we're not just eradicating hunger. We're also giving people a real healthy life and lifestyle. Let's work on that for uh, 2022. Hmm? So I want to thank you all for joining me today. Obviously, go to the list areyouonit.com for everything you heard here today. And you can follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to see everything that is happening, not just here today, but other as well, uh, as I do at the end of every show. A reminder, some people are asking you to wear masks. Just put it on. If you haven't been vaccinated, I don't know what to tell you because you should be getting your booster. And uh, listen, the weather's changing. Be safe out there and have a delicious week. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. 